You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. We hope that you will be encouraged and built up in your relationship with Jesus as you hear the preaching and teaching of God's Word. If Mission Church is not your home church, it is our heart that this podcast will be supplemental and not a substitute to you belonging to a local church in your community. If we can help you get connected to a church in your community, please let us know. Now we hope you enjoy the message from our Sunday gathering. Now today we're going to be continuing in our teaching series through the book of Acts that we have called Empowered for Jesus' Mission. Now many of us, if we're honest, we're kind of tired of hearing me talk about this. But it's important for you and me to understand something that is so true and so life-changing, and it is this. Jesus isn't done with us. You see, right now at this very moment, as we sit in this space, breathing this air, Jesus is fully alive, sitting at the right hand of the Father, and he's empowering his church right now. And who is the church? The church is not the chair you're sitting in. The church are not these walls that you see, these screens or anything like that. The church is people whom Jesus has brought to himself, back to the Father. Case in point, look around. This is the church. And Jesus is empowering us right now. Tonight, we're going to look at the first of 14 healings in the book of Acts. And over the course of my ministry career, if you will, I have seen some healings and I've seen some non-healings. Yet I've seen a common theme in every single one of those situations. Several years ago, I was walking on a church campus in which I was a staff, and an elder looked at me and he said, hey, come into this room with me. I walked in that room to see that all of the elders were together. Now, immediately I thought to myself, I'm getting fired. What did I do? But shortly after that thought came into my head, I watched this young couple walk into the room carrying their baby boy. One of the elders whispered into my ear and said, Travis, we are going to be praying for this young boy. He's got a tumor inside of him. It's inoperable. It's too big. We're going to be pleading to God, asking God to either remove the tumor or to shrink it down so that they could operate. With that, in accordance with James 5.14, one of the elders walked over to this young boy and they anointed his head with oil. Now, when you see oil in the Bible, it's important for you to understand that oil is metaphorical. It is not magical. You see, oil throughout the Bible points to something. Most explicitly, it points to most often the Holy Spirit. And when somebody is anointed with oil, all we are simply saying is, Holy Spirit, we love this person. They are suffering right now. We ask you to come comfort them, be with them. And if it be your will, please heal them. We prayed for this young boy. And with that, they walked out of the the room. Several months later, I watched as this young boy came limping into the ministry to check in. He was accompanied by his parents. I walked up to his parents. I said, how is he doing? They said, you will not believe it, but you probably will believe it because you were there when we prayed. His tumor miraculously shrunk to where we could remove it. The doctors could remove it. And here he is today healthy. It was absolutely amazing. The mom went on to talk about how her and her husband had been praising God from that very moment talked about how some of the nurses and doctors and care workers could not explain it. And what did they do? They praised God as well. You see, through this boy and through this shrinking of this tumor, God was glorified. Now, several years later, I found myself in a similar situation. Yet this time, it wasn't a young boy, but it was a woman. And like this young boy, she too was ill with an illness that was going to take her life. Again, the elders gathered together. They anointed her with oil, but unlike this young boy, this woman was not healed. I remember sitting there with her, planning out her funeral, and she looked at me and she said, Travis, at my funeral, I want you to tell them about Jesus. She passed away. Her funeral convened. People came walking in. 
And amongst those people were some of her family and friends, but there were many doctors and nurses and care workers that were there. And as I talked about Jesus, each one of them, I remember, leaned in intently, wanting to hear more because they have never seen a woman so devoted to Jesus in the final weeks of her life. Afterwards, I gathered with her family and her friends that were believers, and what did we do in that moment? We praised God. Why did we praise God? Because there were people that were sitting in that funeral service who came to know Jesus because they saw her deep trust in him. I can go on to share many more stories, but this causes us attention, right? Why was one healed and the other wasn't? I believe firmly that God healed that young boy, shrunk down his tumor so it could be removed. And I'm gonna say something hard. I also believe that God chose not to heal my friend. You see, this is the real world, friends. But why is there such drastically different outcomes? I don't know. And I can't claim to know on this side of heaven. But what was the theme I saw in both of those situations of healing and not healing? I saw that God was praised. Both of these families knew that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And they resolved in their hearts to say what? Blessed be the name of the Lord. And it is that thought that I want you to keep in mind as we journey through this text. The glory of God and the praise of God. Because I believe this is what Luke wants us to see that a spirit-powered church is all about. Look with me in Acts 3, verse 1. Here's what it says. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. Mission, you've got to listen to me. What were Peter and John, what were they on their way to do? They were going to the temple to what? To pray. And think about that. The Spirit had come upon them in the book of Acts in a mighty, powerful way. In Acts chapter 2, instantaneously, the Spirit comes upon them, and these guys become experts in languages in which they've never spoken before. They were instantaneously able to speak those languages with perfection. They didn't have to download a grammar. They didn't have to get out a bunch of flashcards like I did when I had to learn Hebrew and Greek, just going through them over and over. They didn't download some app like Babel and start to learn. They instantly were able to speak. And what happened? 3,000 people trusted in Jesus. And what are they still doing? They're praying. Why? Because everything in the book of Acts, these disciples, these apostles know, is not a result of their power and might. But rather, everything we read about in the book of the Acts is a result of the power and might of God, the Holy Spirit. You see, mission prayer not only acknowledges our dependence upon God, but it also aligns you and me with the will of God. And as I've studied church history, one of the marks that I've seen of a spirit-empowered church is a church that is committed to praying. But you have to understand, when you and I pray, we do not do this to fill God up. We do not pray to change God. But rather, I believe prayer is an instrument God uses to change us. Throughout Acts, we see the church prays and they respond. They pray and they act. That's what we see. And think about who they pray with, or better yet, think about who they pray to. Over this quarantine, I was introduced to this app or this business called Cameo. Some of you have heard of it. It's a business in which you can pay them money, and they will get a famous celebrity to wish you happy birthday or happy anniversary or congratulations, and they'll send you a video with one of them. For, for example, 
You can get the former Green Bay quarterback, Brett Favre, to wish you a happy birthday if you'll just send him 400 bucks. He will send you a video of himself. For 900 bucks, you could get the great philosopher Snoop Dogg to rap it to you or sing it to you. And if you really want to be feeling good, you could spend $250 and get the most interesting man in the world, the Dos Equis man, Jonathan Goldsmith, to tell you happy birthday while challenging you to stay thirsty, my friend. You can do all that. Now, we could send those videos in, we can get them back, but there's one thing that is true about each and every one of those videos. It's not free. You have to pay for it, right? But think about the prayer. You and I don't have to pray to, or pay to pray. That kind of rhymes, doesn't it? I'm thinking of Snoop. But you don't have to pray, pay to pray. That you and I, we don't come before God by our work, but by Jesus' work. We don't come before God through making a payment, but trusting in the payment that has already been made by Jesus. You see, our access to God is all through Jesus. And though a message from Cameo might make you smile, it might make you grin, I promise you that if you pray to God, you will have more than a smile and a grin. God will change you. You will begin to see the things God wants you to see. You'll begin to do the things God wants you to do because he will bring your heart into alignment with his. So what do Peter and John see? Look at verse two. A man who was lame from birth was being carried there. He was placed each day at the temple cake called beautiful so that he could beg from those entering in the temple. So Peter and John, they're up there on the way to the temple to pray. They enter into the gate and they see a man who is roughly 40 years old. And he has been lame from when? Birth. And when you think of his condition, you have to understand that with his condition comes social shame, but also spiritual shame. Think about this man. He has never taken a step. He's never stood on two feet. He's never gone for a walk. As a young boy, while all the other boys and girls were playing on the playgrounds, he was off to the side laying there because he could not participate. He had no ability. It is likely he never had a chance to get a job. It's likely he never had a chance to get married or to have kids because he could not provide for himself. And each and every day of his life, he is reliant upon his friends to pick him up, to carry him down a windy road and up hills to the gate called Beautiful, where each and every day he would sit there and what? Beg. True or false, especially to the men in this room, would that not feel shameful? to each and every day have to rely on somebody else to carry you around. And each and every day of your existence, you are left there to beg. I remember talking to a man once who said if he found himself in that state, he would rather not live. Yet this man not only experienced social shame, he also experienced spiritual shame. In John chapter 9, verse 2, Jesus' disciples, they see a man who is born blind. They walk up to Jesus and they say, Rabbi, teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born in this state? He was born blind. Think about their question. They're looking at Jesus and they're saying, Jesus, this man is blind from birth. Whose fault is it? Is it his parents' fault? Did his parents do something so horrendous, so bad, that God thought the only way he could really punish them is by smiting their son with blindness from birth? Or... Did God in his omniscience, the fact that he's all-knowing, look down the quarter of time, see that this man did something so bad that in order to stop him from doing it, he made him blind from birth? Jesus, whose fault is it? 
And what does Jesus respond? It's neither. And so that the glory of God can be revealed. You see, the Bible provides us with a worldview to help answer these questions. This gets a little heady, but I need you to hang with me. I can only see your eyes, but I think you can do this, right? Shake your head if you're with me. All right, everybody down? All right, let's do this. You and I instinctively know that sin and death are not normal in this world. We look in Genesis 1.31. It says that God created everything in the Hebrew tov. It just means good. That there was no sin, there was no darkness. Yet all around us, we experience and see things as way, in the way that God intended, did not intend for this world to go. You see, because of sin, friends, death and decay have entered into this world, infecting and affecting everyone and everything. Paul writes in Romans chapter 5 this, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in the same way death spread to all people because all have what? You can say it. Sin. Later in Romans chapter 8, just three chapters later, Paul will say that the very earth in which you and I reside on is groaning out in pains like labor pains, longing for this infection, this disease, this sin to be obliterated from this world. But who is responsible for this? Who sinned? We all have. Each and every one of us have chosen sin and death over God and life. And when we look at the Bible, we see that God speaks about the pain and the suffering we experience in this world in various ways. There is some sin we encounter that is absolutely a result of cause and effect. And because we've done a certain thing, we experience a certain amount of shame. For example, if any of us in this room decide to drive drunk and we cause some harm or damage to someone or something, more than likely we're going to be shamed, right? Our weird picture is going to end up on the news and they're going to say, this is who it is and this is what happened. If you decide to take your parents' car and go do donuts in the school parking lot or the church parking lot and you hit that car on a light post to where it falls over and damages the car, you're probably going to be shamed. You've got to pay for it. I've never done such a thing, okay? But in 1 Corinthians 11.30, Paul says that within the church in Corinth, People are ill. People are suffering. Why? Because they're engaging in rampant sexual activity and drunkenness while taking communion and not repenting. There is some shame. There is some sin that is cause and effect. But there is other situations in which there is not a direct cause to the pain we feel. It's just simply a part of you and me living in a world that is broken. I do not know the cause of my father's cancer when he was struggling with it. He didn't think, I need to get cancer. He didn't go looking for cancer. I don't know if he did anything. I don't know where it came from. When my friend's child was born stillborn, I don't know the cause of that. I can't even fathom what the cause of that was. You see, there was no direct cause that we know of. We know that all things are not right that all things are broken. And when we see those situations, all we can conclude is somehow in some way, this goes back to Genesis 3, that this world is not as it's supposed to be. And the miracles of Jesus are just simply to show you and me what the world is gonna be like when he comes back. He's showing us glimpses of those right now. 
So what do Peter and John do? Look at verses three and four. When he saw Peter and John about to enter the temple, he asked for money. Peter, along with John, looked straight at him and said, look at us. What does this man do? The same thing he has been doing for the last 30 to 35 years. He just simply sits at the temple. Smart idea. Religious people typically are generous. And he tries to get his money, just try to get through his day. And what do Peter and John do? They look right at him. But what leapt off this page for me this week as I was studying this is they not only look at him, but they look at this man and they say, look at us. How many of us, if we're honest, drive up to the intersection or the stop sign and we see somebody sitting there? They have a sign. And the next thing we do is we try to act like we don't see them. I'm sure I'm not the only one who has done this, right? Don't make me feel like terrible, <laughs> well, even though I kind of do anyway. But, but we act like we don't see this person, right? We don't want to make eye contact with them. We definitely don't want them looking at us. Several years ago, I had the opportunity to go downtown for a filming project for a ministry I was a part of. And on video, I don't know why this happened, I got into this conversation with this man who was homeless. But as I am talking to him, you can see on video, this other guy walks past me, bumps me violently, and says, he doesn't need your help, somebody like me does, and he kept walking. Now, I was a little ticked off by this, and I decided, hey, I'm going to track this guy down. I want to catch a story. I ended up finding him, and I got him a burger at a fast food place. And for an hour and a half, we sat there and had a conversation. I asked him, I said, what do you need the most? And he jokingly said, I need clean underwear. And I was like, that's kind of awkward. I don't know what I could do about that right now, bro. But he looked at me and he said, no, seriously, what I need is my self-worth back. People will walk by me and they look away from me like I'm dangerous or I have some sort of disease. He said, when this economy tanked, I lost my job. I was living paycheck to paycheck. And so as soon as I lost my job, where was I? Out on the streets. The question you and I have to ask ourselves is this. Do you see the needs around you? And when you see those needs, do you have compassion on those needs? Jesus in Luke chapter 19 is walking through the streets of Jericho. And as he's walking through those streets, he sees this little bitty guy up in a tree, sycamore tree by the name of Zacchaeus. Now, when I was a kid, I always thought Zacchaeus was Irish because there's a song that some of you guys know that go with the story that he was a wee little man and a wee little man was he and he climbed up a tree, right? But he wasn't Irish, he was a Hebrew, but he was a traitor to his people because he is a tax collector. And as a tax collector, though he would be extremely wealthy, he was ostracized and marginalized by his community. They couldn't stand him for he was a traitor. Yet as Jesus is walking through Jericho, he looks up in the tree and who does he see? Zacchaeus. And what does he say? Come down, I'm going to eat at your house tonight. And as you read in Luke chapter 19, you see that the fruit of the gospel is exhibited in Zacchaeus' life. That Jesus changes his life. And instead of being a traitor and greedy, he starts to show the fruit of Jesus and be generous to those who are around him. Not to earn his salvation, but because in Jesus, he has everything. And what does Jesus say? Today, salvation has come to this home, to this place. When Jesus was walking around, friends, all he saw were needy people. And yet in each and every situation, he seeks to have compassion on them, to love them, and to show them the greater joy of who he is. And that's what we are called to do. It's easy to identify 
the needy people that are on the street corners. But do you know the needy people that are in your street? I'm sure I'm not the only one that saw that we are seeing a record number of teenage suicide right now in the city. Loneliness is a need. Relationship, being deprived of relationships is a need. There are people on our streets, people in our neighborhoods, we're like, yeah, they're a little bit weird, but probably the best thing you could do is just see their need, have compassion on and befriend them. You see, salvation came into Zacchaeus' home, and we're gonna see that salvation comes to this man. For that's exactly what John and Peter want for him. Look what it says in verses five through eight. So they turned to them. So he turned to them, expecting to get something from them. But Peter said, I don't have silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, get up and walk. Then taking him by the right hand, he raised him up. And at once his feet and ankles became strong. So he jumped up and started to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising who? God. Don't miss what Peter says here. Who healed this man? Peter? No. John? No. David Copperfield? No. Who healed this man? Jesus. You see, the name Jesus of Nazareth is the point of this text. Yes, you and I, we are to step in and we are to help the needs around us. But we don't do it in our name. We don't do it in a company's name. We don't do it in our family's name. We step in and help in the name of Jesus, period. 700 years before this ever took place, the prophet Isaiah says that when the Messiah comes, you will know that he comes by what happens. And listen to what he says will happen when the Messiah comes in Isaiah 35. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. For water will gush in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Who is Isaiah talking about here? When in doubt, just say one name and you win. Jesus, okay? Everybody gets an A, all right? Everybody's got an A. Jesus. And who does Peter say healed this man? Jesus. Why? It's simply because if our carrying and service is not done in the name of Jesus, then all we are doing is temporarily fixing an eternal problem. Let me say that again. If all you and I are doing is caring and serving, if it is not done in the name of Jesus, then what we are doing is temporarily fixing an eternal problem. This man was 40 years old before he could stand up and walk. And at best, he probably has another 30 to 40 years to walk. But he doesn't jump up, walk, and leap into the temple praising Peter, praising John, but praising who? God. And if you look in your Bibles in chapter 4, verse 14, we see that this very man who was healed is standing amongst who? The disciples of Jesus. He looks up at Peter and John, expecting to get a money handout. Yet he gets physically healed, and I would argue he gets something even greater. He gets spiritually healed because he's standing amongst the disciples now who are worshiping Jesus. And notice that his healing wasn't to end with him. He's not the only one in all in our text. Look at verses nine through 10. And the people saw him walking and praising God. And they recognized that he was the one who used to sit and beg at the beautiful gate of the temple. 
So they were filled with awe and astonishment at what had happened to him. Who saw this? Thousands of people. Each and every day, thousands of people would walk in this gate and out of this gate. And for about 30 to maybe 35 years, who would they see sitting at this gate begging? This man. And now they see that he's up walking and praising God. This man is not the only one who is filled with awe and praising God. We see that many people are in awe and astonishment at what happened to him. And next week, Pastor Nathan is going to preach from Peter's sermon and show us what happens and what Peter shares. But what we see from the healing of this man is just simply this, that it was so that the glory of God could be known in his life, but also in the lives of all those who were around him. I said from the start, I do not know why some are healed and some are not, but I do know there is a common theme in many situations in which people are healed and not healed who know Jesus. What is that theme? They praise God. Yes, I believe that God healed that young boy that I talked about. Doctors, nurses, care workers, his family, his friends, his very own parents, praise God as a result. And I also think that my friend who wasn't healed, and this is tough, but I need you to hear this, wasn't healed for the glory of God either. Let that sink in. She wasn't healed for God's glory. I think that. I believe that. You see, the closest followers of Jesus, friends, were not immune to some of the greatest suffering. God didn't exempt them from it. They didn't have, in the words of somebody, their best life now. Because their best life isn't now. Their best life is in that now. Do you understand what I'm saying and why I get so passionate about this? Be, think about it. Jesus' very own followers were not exempt from the pain and suffering of this world. The Apostle Paul says it in 2 Corinthians like this, 2 Corinthians 12. For I want to boast, and I wouldn't be a fool because I would be telling the truth, but I will spare you so that no one can credit me with something beyond what he sees in me or hears in me, especially because of the extraordinary revelations. Therefore, so that I would not exalt myself, listen to this, a thorn in the flesh was given to me. It was given to Paul. A messenger from Satan to torment me so that I would not what? Exalt myself. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it would leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Many people look at this text and they try to debate the thorn in the flesh. Some people say it was Paul's eyesight. Some people say it was another ailment. But you know what absolutely drives me crazy? It's those charlatan preachers that will go out and do a healing service. And then somebody doesn't get healed And instead of owning it and saying, I don't know what I'm doing, what do they do? They shame that person. And they say, you don't have enough faith. This is on you. That is demonic and from the very pit of hell. And you're like, why are you so passionate about this? Because it's the number one thing on all the Christian TV stations. Think about it. Paul wasn't healed. And would any of us in this room doubt his robust faith? 
No, none of us would. Mission, you have to hear me. And I say this with tears, and I've been so afraid to say this today. I've texted people, hey, please pray, because when we preach through Bibles, we can't skip these texts, right? You don't get to just gloss over this one. You guys would all know. But you have to hear me. Sometimes God will not, and that's just kids upstairs. Sometimes God will not heal you for your good. Sometimes God will not heal you because he loves you. What may be good for your body may not be good for your soul or for the souls of others. Let me say it again. God may not heal you because he loves you. That he wants good in your life. What may be good for your body may not be good for your soul and for the souls of others. That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, hey, if everything was fine for me, I would be a really arrogant guy. Nobody would be, want to be around me. You'd be sitting at the table, he'd be one-upping you all the time. We, we can't stand those people. But what does he say? This messenger was given to me. This gift was given me, this thorn in the side, whatever it was, to keep me humble and dependent upon his grace. Philip Yancey, and I don't know what book it's in, he talks about a friend of his, and we'll finish up here. He talks about a friend of his who struggled with alcoholism, and he prayed like crazy. Many people that say that when Paul prayed three times, that he just literally prayed three times. I tend to side with those commentators that say three is the number of perfection, which means he was relentless and unstoppable in his prayer to God. And what did God say? My grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. You're going to carry this. So Philip Yancey talks about his friend who's an alcoholic. And uh, he said every single day he would pray, and he couldn't understand why his thirst for Jack Daniel's whiskey wouldn't go away. And listen to what he says. I prayed every day that God would take away my thirst for drink. And every day when I woke up, my first thought was Jack Daniel's whiskey. Then one day I realized my craving for drink was the very reason I prayed every day. My weakness draws me to God. My weakness draws me to God. That friend of mine who passed away, it's going to happen. I tried not to make it happen. I cannot talk about her without crying. But as my wife and I sat in her hospice room, we looked at her. She said something blew my mind. She said, I would never wish this cancer on my enemy. But I would also never wish this cancer away because how much Jesus showed me his love through it. Can you see now why we were standing in awe at her funeral? Because she didn't just tell us that. She told every one of her hospice care workers, every one of her doctors, every one of her nurses, and God was glorified. Absolutely, yes and amen. God is glorified through the healing. I believe God was glorified through this man being healed. I believe God was glorified through this young boy's tumor shrinking. But I also believe God was glorified through the Apostle Paul and the thorn in his flesh. And I also believe that God was glorified through my friend suffering well and hearing well done and faithful servant as she entered into Jesus' presence. You see, what is the point of the miracle? The praise and the glory of God. Whether it's through the healing or not, God be the glory.
So mission, let us pray boldly for healing. Yes and amen. But let us do so trusting that no matter the outcome, God is good and his glory is our greatest joy. Let me pray for you. God, we love you. And we know from your word that pain and trial and suffering is not a matter of if, but when. Some of us in this room right now are experiencing great pain. Others of us haven't yet. But no matter what, God, I pray that your word will rest deeply in our hearts. We need to hear this in times of plenty and health so that we can be ready in times of sorrow and pain. God, I thank you for this story. I thank you for this historical event in which we get to see a glimpse of what your kingdom is going to be like when you finally restore all things and the groaning in this world has ceased. There will be no lame. There will be no mute. There will be no deaf. There will be no darkness, sickness, or evil. Every tear of those who trust in you, their their tears will be wiped away. And God, we look forward to that day. But until then, may we be a church that is faithful in the plenty and in the want, in the sorrow and in the joy. Jesus, may you be big in our lives so that when people look at us, no matter what befalls us, they see that you, in fact, are our greatest treasure. This man, Jesus, died. But I believe from Acts 4, he is with you. His greatest joy wasn't walking. His greatest joy was you. And so, Jesus, we ask that you be our greatest joy. For your glory, our joy, and for the good of the community around us. We pray us in your name. Amen.